Hey everyone, this is Ryan Smith. Welcome to the Threadcast here for uh, Common Thread. This is a special Threadcast that we are beginning. Um, it's kind of our Advent series that we're going to be joining in on with all of our people from around the world, our people in the UK. And a little late getting this up. I apologize. It's been a hectic week. I know for a lot of people it has been for everybody else, but I want to don't want that to be an excuse. I want us to kind of just jump in and start walking through um, this season of Advent together. Um, it's something new for me. It's not something I've done before. So it's something I'm learning as well, and, and hopefully you guys can bring uh, things to the table. And so... We are going to spend the next few weeks up until Christmas time just walking through this series of Advent. Um, we're going to be looking at the women of Advent. Um, kind of excited about that. Um, we'll talk more about that here in a second. But uh, for those, for some of us, um, we have you guys have participated in the uh, the ritual, the the excitement of Advent, um, and are new or not new to it. Uh, something you've always done. For some of us, we've never done it before, and so. We're going to participate in Advent in a unique, common way, common thread way. Um, so, you know, we kind of put our spin on things. Um, so, for those that have been doing it uh, their whole life, uh, we we can learn from you, but also um, maybe we might do things a little differently. Um, but I just want to encourage everybody as we go through this that uh, you do what is appropriate for your family. Um, and for me specifically, um, this is uh, I'm trying to find a way to to dive into the Christmas season. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm just kind of fed up with what Christmas has become, um, how people fight over it, um, how it's become you know, this commercial thing. Um, but I want to bring back um, the, the beauty of what Christmas is all about. And so this is this is kind of that journey for me. Um, it'll be new for me. So I, I hope we can do this together. But for those that are new, simply Advent, um, when it's just uh, Adventus is the, I think, the Latin term for it. Um, simply means coming. And so it's like the coming of something, like the coming of an age, the coming of um, of an anticipation of like the the internet or the coming of the whatever it might be. But it's this idea of coming. And so Advent is actually a season um, in the church calendar and in the liturgical calendar for those uh, who know what that means. But um, it's not just this one-time event, but it's actually... Um, a season. And so in the liturgical calendar, there's actually different seasons that they go through. And so this past Sunday began the season of Advent. It goes up to um, right to Christmas. And then there's a season of Christmas. Um, so Advent and Christmas aren't the same thing. They're kind of separate. And so Christmas actually goes from December 25th to January 6th, which leads into what they call Epiphany and all this other stuff. And so, um, but Advent is a season that leads us into um, the Christmas day, the Christmas time. Now, um, Advent is something that's kind of unique. Um, we know Advent, we have writings about Advent, people participating in the season of Advent all the way back to the fourth century. Um, and so this is super early. Um, this is actually back in the time we have biblical manuscripts. So this is when we have actual writings of the New Testament. And so, um, so Advent has been around for a while. Um, and so it is a season of preparation, a season of anticipation, a season of waiting. And what's interesting about Advent is that when it first began, they actually, you know, since it was in the fourth century, so it was after Jesus um, had already been crucified and resurrected. And so they actually start participating in Advent um, in, in anticipation of the second coming of Christ, not the first coming. 
But um, later on, as it, it progressed, it kind of changed into both. So it became this anticipation, this season of the um, linking to the Jews before Jesus came and how they had been waiting during the quiet times between the Old Testament and New Testament. I think I can't remember. I'm, I'm speaking off the top of my head, but I think it's like 400 years where they didn't hear from God, but they're just waiting for this Messiah. And so they've linked the Advent season to that waiting, that longing that we read about before Jesus comes, but also we link it for us today as we participate in Advent. It's a way for us to to join them and how what they anticipated the Christ coming, but also how we now are anticipating, longing for that second coming, right? Um, and so that's that's part of the reason that we join in this season. Um, so this idea is for the, the season of Advent is to talk about what is it like to anticipate to, to prepare, to wait. Um, we're such a, a group of people of, uh, of instant gratification that we've forgotten the beauty of what it means to have that in our lives. And so during this Advent season for us, uh, Common Thread, I want to challenge you to do whatever it is for you to encourage um, waiting, um, for you to, to to participate in that concept of preparation, of anticipation. What is it? Not just to kind of push that to the side, but but to dive deep into that that concept of anticipation. And we talked a little bit about that there's also hope in that, that there's hope in, in this, this, this kind of concept as well. Um, something that I'm going to be participating in and how just how to live this out. I'm going to be looking for different ways to live out the concept of Advent. Um, but for me, I, I found uh, there's a group of people who've started doing this. Um, and it's a group called the Common Rule. But um, one way that they are um, remind themselves of how to stay um, in this anticipation mode is the rule is no phone while waiting. And so the idea is that anytime, like if you're at a stoplight or whenever you, you know, those those small moments in your life where you pull out your phone just because you you you're, you don't have much to do, whether you're in a doctor's office or at a light. Um, for some of us, maybe we're on the toilet <laughs> or whatever it might be, but we pull out the phone um, just to, to feel the dead air. And so what I'm going to try to do is um, up until Christmas, I'm going to put my phone down in those moments of waiting and just live in that moment. Let that, that moment um, kind of guide us, um, guide my thoughts um, into it. And so that's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, I'd love to hear maybe other ways that you're going to um, to let this season of Advent challenge you what it means to wait, to have hope, to have anticipation. And so the concept of Advent, it reminds us year after year that the Savior, that Jesus, um, the Savior of the world, did not come into perfect families. Um that he didn't come into families that were filled with perfect people um, who did not need saving to begin with. He came into families like yours and mine, families with immediate wounds and generational scars. Advent reminds us that Jesus loves being in the mess. Um, I, I did a, a, a series a long time ago called The Messiah in the Mess, and what we're going to be doing during this Advent series is we're going to be looking at the genealogy of Matthew because in that genealogy, um, Matthew does something. You know, a lot of us uh, today we don't we don't 
like genealogies. They don't mean much to us. But back then, genealogies were huge to the Jewish culture, um, to the Roman culture. To know who you came from was huge and important. And so to, to start to proclaim who the Messiah is, where he came from was so important to know his, his roots, right? But Matthew seems to introduce the Christmas story by insulting Jesus' family. Because in this genealogy, he includes all kinds of uh, suspect personalities, um, crazy people, things that, that you would not, you know, those are the ones that you want to keep in the, the, the closet, right? You know, it's like, like Uncle Buck, if you remember that movie. But, you know, those people that, you know, you, you're not really proud to have. Um, but in this, in this, Matthew gives us this genealogy that captures something important about the nature of of Advent. Something we talked about earlier. Advent reminds us that God enters into the awkward, the ambiguous, the sketchy parts of human existence. But he does that to redeem humankind from the inside out. Okay, And that's something that's important, especially back then. The gods were these gods who sat up on high and looked down at the people and and, and ruled from above. But from Matthew and from the story that we get is that we see that Advent, that when Jesus comes, he enters into humankind from the inside, from the mess. And that's a big part of what we're going to be looking at. And so Jesus Christ did not come into a perfect family filled with perfect people who didn't need saving. He came into a wrecked family filled with wrecked people who needed a Savior. And by displaying these broken branches of Christ's family tree, God sheds light on the realities of the human condition, of who you and I are today. And so this is why it's important for us to dive into this Advent. This is something that is is applicable to us, that we don't have to be perfect people for Jesus to be a part of, of the genealogy. And so we don't usually, the stories that we're going to be dealing with um, during the season of Advent this year are not stories that we usually talk about during Advent. Um, but to me, these stories are what I'm finding to be Advent is all about. And so we're going to be looking at the women of Advent is what we're calling this. And what we're going to do is in the, in the genealogy in Matthew, there are five women who are, who are mentioned. And so we're going to look at these five women in Christ's lineage. They're Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and then Mary. Um, now there's four weeks in Advent, and so there's five women. So we're gonna have to figure out how we're gonna do that a little bit. But um, we're gonna be using workplace to, to to dive into this a little bit. But all of these women embody the reality into which Christ came, and the Advent hope that we can find within that. Um, and that's like we talked about. We're going to be spending most of this time in Advent. Um, the, the liturgical calendar has four different themes that kind of go through each week. We'll talk about those a little bit. But for me, what I want us to do during this time is to really focus all on hope. What does it hope look like in that anticipation, that longing when things aren't right, when you know there's something that's supposed to be better? That what is? How does hope play into that? And, and we're going to be diving into that as as a group of people. Now. Had Matthew wanted like this cleaner, more clearly Jewish sampling of what it would look like, you know, to, to have a nice um, lineage, if you will, he could have chose people like Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, even Rachel, people who, who, you know, those are ladies that we look up to. But he chose these other women who seem to have these very, very shady backgrounds um, to proclaim the beauty of Christ and where he came from. And, and, and so... Matthew wants to show us this Savior who came for everyone. 
not the perfect people, but came for everyone, including the messed up people like you and me. And so through the wombs of these four Gentile women and a teenage Jewish girl, God gave Advent hope to the world. And this hope proclaims that our past, including our families of origin, can be taken up and become a part of our future in Christ. And so Jesus Christ, as we've said, Jesus Christ did not come into a perfect family filled with perfect people who did not need saving. He came into a messed up family filled with messed up people who needed a Savior just like me and you. He came to invite the very people whose behavioral issues would have had them invited out of churches where everyone per- behaves properly, right? He, he, he gave us those people who wouldn't be included in the church role, but said, this, this is the lineage of Jesus. And so the reality stands at the center of our Advent hope that God is and always will be with us. Um, that's an incredible, 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 incredible message. And so it's a reality to which Matthew points his readers by including these misfits in the genealogy of Jesus. Um, Remember that Jesus ate with people who had behavioral issues like tax collectors and prostitutes. Yet somehow we often overlook that one of his great grandmothers took such behavioral issues to a whole new level. And so today we're going to spend a little time talking about Tamar, the first woman and Gentile mentioned in Jesus' family tree and who somehow made prostitution righteous. Um, this is one of those stories. Uh, as we dive into this, I'm going to just tell you, um, for a lot of us, we're, we're dealing with this, like this Me Too, um, you know, this idea that, that we're women's rights and, and, and we want to give them um, their, their due process, that they're the place where they belong. We want to bring that into, you know, what we believe that Jesus uh, intended, that men and women be equal in that sense. And so we, we look at some of the Bible passages with our Western modern thinking. And this, these are one of those, um, these, these women that we're going to be looking at, and they're going to be held up as people that we need to look to. But we're going to see that maybe they don't um, meet our standards today. Um, that there's some things that we're like, hmm, I don't understand why this is something we hold up. But uh, I want you just kind of, I want you to kind of just wrestle with that because there is something that we do with this. And so, the story of Tamar is one of those. Um, it starts with um, that Judah uh, married a Canaanite woman, and and Judah is a character in the Old Testament. You can I'm not I'm going to skip over some details. So if you want to fill in the blank, look into the Old Testament. Uh, I'll give you some some places to do this in Genesis around Genesis 38. But if you want to talk about that, let me know. We'll we'll talk through some more of this. But Judah marries a Canaanite woman, and they have three sons: Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah's oldest son, Ur, marries a woman named Tamar. Though Genesis doesn't explicitly tell us that she is a Canaanite woman, it can be inferred because Judah is living among the Canaanites and away from his brothers. And so ancient readers of Genesis would have considered Tamar as a Canaanite, and because of that, to be morally suspect. You know, Canaanites um, weren't Jews, and they were came from messed up people, and so uh, the Jews looked at Canaanites as people who, who just weren't people you, you held up. But it is Ur's wickedness, not Tamar's, that draws attention from God. In Genesis 38, 7, it says this, But the Lord considers Judah's oldest son Ur immoral, and the Lord put him to death. 
Now, the nature of Ur's evil remains a mystery. We don't know exactly what it was, what he was doing. All we can know is that he must have enacted some entirely egregious evil at some point. Because after all, this is the first individual that God kills directly in the entire Bible. So the death of Ur creates an enormous problem for Tamar. So in a patriarchal, patriarchal culture of the ancient Near East, a woman found her identity and security in the men in her life. First her father, then her husband, and finally her sons. They all protected her, provided for her, and gave her a future. So to put it in modern terms, they provided the income, the insurance, and the retirement plan. Women had few other options. This, of course, made the status of widows and women who couldn't bear children very tenuous. So when Ur dies, he and Tamar have not produced a male child together. So this leaves Tamar without a husband or son. She's in a vulnerable social position of a childless widow. Her husband had been Judah's oldest son, and he would have inherited the lion's share of Judah's estate. So Tamar would have been fairly well off, but after the death of Ur, her future prospects are suddenly gone. Without a husband or a son, her status as an insider to Judah's clan comes into question. Now, does that all resonate with you, this idea that you have these plans, you're set, and then something happens and all those plans are completely gone? What do you do with that? That, that kind of resonates with me. So in Deut- Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, it explains that this law called the Leverite Law, um, that according to this law, if a man died without having a son, the dead man's wife must not go outside the family and marry a stranger. Instead, her brother-in-law should go to her and take her as his wife. He will then consummate the marriage according to the brother-in-law's duty. The brother-in-law will name the oldest male son that she bears after his dead brother so that the, his brother's legacy will not be forgotten in Israel. So the, the, God recognized that, that widows were, such, uh, were in such a bad-off place that he wrote into Scripture a way to take care of these women. So, in accordance with the custom that preluded the Leverite law, Judah does the right thing by giving his next oldest son to Tamar in marriage. Now listen to this. He tells his son, Onan, go to your brother's wife, do your duty as her brother-in-law, and provide children for your brother. Now notice, Judas, Judah, Judas, <laughs> Judah does not say to Onan, marry her, just go into her, or have sex with her. So the father appeals to Onan's sense of sympathy by referring to the late Ur as your brother rather than as my son. Judah's concern plainly lies with his dead son, not with his living daughter-in-law. That's important. In Judah's language, we hear no compassion for Tamar. He regards her as mere property, another thing to deal with, and inconvenience. He may as well have told Onan his deceased brother left him a collection of knickknacks in the attic, if you will. So not surprisingly then, Onan treats Tamar in exactly the same manner. This obligation to provide children for her and his deceased brother provides a greater headache for him than for his father. By taking on this responsibility, Onan puts his and his son's own inheritance at risk. As the oldest son, Ur had the right to a double portion of his father's estate upon Judah's death. 
That larger share would have passed on to Onan after Ur's death, but the Leverite law now called that into question. Presumably, the children Onan provided for Ur would receive Ur's inheritance. To do the right thing, Onan must forfeit his potential personal gain. Tamar represents a financial liability, a threat to his inheritance. So calculating the cost of impregnating Tamar, Onan has sex with her, but at this last second, it reads, he wasted his semen on the ground so he wouldn't give his brother children. <laughs> um, Merry Christmas, right? And an incredible story there. But 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 by denying justice to the vulnerable ought to cause but denying justice to the vulnerable ought to cause shame. Onan, however, circumvents the repercussions of his refusal by spilling his semen on the ground. In short, Onan appears to live justly while actually denying justice to Tamar, which adds to his decadence and her destitution. His injustice appears as justice. His darkness charades his light, and his malevolence masks itself as benevolence. But God sees through his deception. And the Lord considered what he did as wrong and put him to death too. So, despite her own vulnerability, Tamar creates a way um, to take advantage of, of Judah at the moment, moment at his greatest vulnerability. And so what happens here is, we kind of skipped a part here. So after Onan dies, um, he's got another son, but this time, you know, Judah is just, he's wanting to look out for himself and he doesn't... Um, you know, he wants to do the honorable thing, but he really doesn't. He doesn't want to take care of Tamar anymore because it's going to be too much of a headache. So he tells Tamar, hey, I want you to go back. Um, go go back and live with your dad. Let him take care of you for a little bit. And then when my youngest son is old enough to marry, I'll send him to you. But Tamar and Judah both knew that this was a lie, that she, Judah was just basically trying to get Tamar out of the way. You know, um, if you don't see her, it's not there. You just kind of ignore it. Tamar knew this. Tamar knew that she was be sent, being sent away and that nothing um, that she was supposed to get um, was going to happen. And so Tamar takes the bull by the horns, if you will, and starts to think of things. And so he, um, in this time as well, Judah's wife um, dies. Um, and so um, Tamar creates this plan to take advantage of Judah, Judah at the moment of his greatest vulnerability. So after Judah sent Tamar back to her father's house, Judah's wife died, as we talked about. So as a widow, Tamar knew something about the emotional turmoil of losing a spouse. Changing from the clothes of a widow, Tamar covered herself with a veil and put on makeup. Other ways of translating that uh, last part include she perfumed herself or wrapped herself up, made herself look good. The meaning's clear. She makes herself attractive. She then went and sat at the entrance of Enim, where Judah would pass by. Her veiled face led Judah to think she was a prostitute, and she intended to catch Judah's attention to provide him a means to address his physical needs, if you know what I mean. So, not recognizing the prostitute at the city gate as, as his Tamar, Judah asked to sleep with her and offers to pay her a goat for her services. Now, a goat, which incidentally, he does not have with him at his time. He left his wallet at home. He's not carrying a goat with him. So he says, um, she plays the role of the congenial hostess and proposes to give her, um, instead of giving the goat at the time, he says, I'll give you my seal, my cord, and staff as a guarantee that I will provide you with a goat. 
And so basically he was saying, I'll give you these three things. We'll have sex now. And then when you come when later on, you bring these three things back and I'll give you a goat. So she would have sex with him now um, and leave these at a later time. But these items, Judah's seal, his cord, and staff are hardly insignificant items. You need to understand these are markers of Judah's identity. One scholar writes that the seal was often threaded onto a leather cord and worn around the neck of the owner. In Palestine, it is more common to find stamp seals engraved on a flat side. Another form of identification mentioned here is the staff, an aid to walking as well as an animal goad and weapon. Since this was a personal item, it may well have been carved and polished and thus known to belong to a particular person. So, um, so, so these are important things. So Judah um, sleeps with Tamar, and then um, later on uh, we find out that he, Judah wants to get his three things back. So he sends um, a slave or a, a person that works for him, a guy named Harah. Um, to go find this woman and to go into the town and find her. So when Hurrah goes to try to find um, this woman, he can't. So when he's unable to find the woman Judah slept with, Judah decides to leave his items with her. He says, you know what, you know, forget it. Let her keep everything so we're not laughed at, you know, because, um, you know, he's a righteous man. And, you know, if he's out sending his guy looking for this prostitute and, you know, he's asking all these words, um, you know, it would look bad. You know, Judah is more concerned about saving face than providing the goat um, that she would have needed for her next meal. Um, That's how bad this is. So his character remains consistent. He shows no concern for justice in the case of his daughter-in-law, and his concern for the economic well-being of this prostitute only extends as far as his reputation, however false, will allow. So then, after three months pass, Judah receives some surprising news. Hey, Tamar is ex- expecting. A messenger tells Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar has become a prostitute and is now pregnant because of it. Judah responds by saying, bring her out that so she may be burned. Judah's harsh response displays the double standard inherent in his culture. Sexual promiscuity among men is not only tolerated, but expected. However, in that culture, a woman's sexuality remained under the dominion of male authority. In other words, Judah could sleep with a prostitute and receive no punishment. But when his daughter-in-law acted as a prostitute, she deserved to die. So Judah's indignation has no basis in righteousness. It merely exists within the cultural bubble of patriarchal double standardness. And this double standard exists precisely because Judah judges Tamar as his property, proper which he now threatens to burn. So when Tamar finds herself at three months pregnant, called before her father-in-law, the cunning and creativity of her plan begins to come together in a comedic kind of climax. She sends a messenger ahead of her to prepare for her arrival. The messenger carries with him Judah's personal effects given to Tamar at the time of their encounter, along with a damning message. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. See if you recognize whose seal, cord, and staff these are. I can imagine the messenger is pausing between each item for for this rhetorical effect. This seal, this cord, this staff. So snared now by Tamar's trap, Judah has no other option than to admit these things belong to him. So it it seems that his email address has been hacked um, by the webpage. His profile picture cannot be mistaken for anyone else, right? 
Um, so Tamar's words revealed Judah to be a man caught in his own web of wickedness. But they do more. They do more than reveal his identity. They assert her identity. They assert her humanity. Implied in her words at the request that Judah recognize her for who she is, his wronged daughter-in-law. And as surprised as Judah is to see his items coming from the home of Tamar, we, the readers, may be even more surprised at Judah's response. For the first time in the entire narrative, Judah acts in a godly manner. He says, she's more righteous than I am because I didn't allow her to marry my son, Shelah. She is more righteous than I am. Judah's rhetoric of righteousness here seems ironic considering the fact that Tamar acted as a prostitute. But the writer of Genesis wants us to understand that her deviance compares not at all with Judah's denial of justice. A guy named Walter Brueggemann says, Tamar has committed the, the kind of sin the good people prefer to condemn. Engaging in deception and illicit sex and bringing damage to a good family. But by his indifference, Judah has violated her right to well-being and dignity in the community. So when we define righteousness and unrighteousness merely in terms of pet sins or religious deeds, we lose the bigger picture of responsibility and obligations toward the weaker members of society. This responsibility and obligation is inherent to Christian faith. Tamar leaves this story without a single word of condemnation hanging over her reputation. Rather, Judah sees the good of her behavior in a situation where she had few options. Her actions make her righteous, even if they offend our notions of traditional family values and Victorian sexuality. So, and therein lies the Advent hope. Those of us who know the depths of our imperfections can find grace in a story such as this. Tamar is a Canaanite, she's a childless widow, and she behaves as a prostitute. She is an underdog, an outsider, even, and even there was one. But the ethnic, religious, and moral outsider finds not only acceptance into God's family, but actually becomes part of God's plan to remake the world in true righteousness. This is a righteousness that, that not only appears religious, but also defines itself in responsibility an obligation to love our neighbors as ourselves, to care for the vulnerable in society. It is a righteousness defined by right relationships and justice. This often forgotten text pre- previews the coming Christ by describing an upside-down world where the defenseless are exalted over the domineering and the marginalized over the mighty. So in Christ, prostitutes and sinners find fellowship in a way the righteous can never experience. Or rather, maybe they can experience it only insofar as they are willing to acknowledge that those who appear less than righteous may be, in fact, more righteous than I am. So this week, I want you to reflect in your own, on your own family. Be honest about any brokenness that lies within it. Be brutally honest. Look around at your interactions with your parents, your siblings, your children, to other family members, and name those places where God might, might, might want to work on some things. As a member of the elect family of God, Judah took his privileges for granted. God still had a lot of work to do in his family, but he stopped paying attention. So make a list of the relationships in your family where you think they are long overdue for some repentance. List names and events that exemplify places of brokenness you'd rather ignore. Then make a plan to pursue righteousness and reconciliation in these relationships, piece by piece, 
person by person. Some of these may be fixed more quickly than others. Some may never get fixed. Trusting God to work these things out, put yourself in a position to see and follow God's lead. God doesn't work through model families, but through imperfect families like Judah and Tamar's. It's a messy business, but God is big enough to help us out. So in the mess comes a Messiah, and that is our hope as we enter into this Advent. Hope you have a great day. Grace and peace.